both agree to those basic tenets of the Christian faith. So there's a lot that we hold in common. But we cannot deny that there are some real differences. The Bible is like a caged lion that set it free. The Bible is quite able to defend itself. We're going to look at some of the difficult questions that people ask about the Bible. Answering the difficult questions about the Bible. This is Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. For the next couple days, our program will be a bit more interactive, asking you to give us your questions. Today, David answers some of the hard questions that people have asked him regarding our faith. We'd love to hear your questions too, so write to us at info at momentsofhopechurch.org. Let's move into today's message. We're gonna look at some of the difficult questions that people ask about the Bible. Next week, by the way, practical applications for how to do a quiet time to end the series. But today, those very difficult questions that people ask about the Bible. I want to read to you several verses from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. This is the word of the Lord. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, that's the scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God. It just basically means God wrote it. God wrote the word. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God and the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Well, someone once said that the Bible doesn't really need to be defended. The Bible is like a caged lion that set it free. The Bible is quite able to defend itself. Nevertheless, there are many questions that people ask about the Bible. First of all, our beliefs versus Catholicism. Our beliefs versus Catholicism. Well, the truth is the Protestant church of which we're a part has some differences with the Roman Catholic church. Let me first say, though, there are many similarities. Uh, for example, uh, both of us affirm the basic tenets of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, both of us believe in the councils of Nicaea and Chalcedon back in the early church, which define specifically for the Christian church an understanding of the Trinity, one God in three persons. We both agree to those basic tenets of the Christian faith. So there's a lot that we hold in common. But we cannot deny that there are some real differences. And those differences revolve around this pesky little word, soli, in the Latin, which means alone. And, and the three areas where soli is mentioned in the Protestant, the protesting group of people against the Roman Catholic teaching back in the 1600s revolve first around this word soli scriptura, scripture alone, where the Roman Catholic Church believes that the Pope and the magisterium and their councils can interpret the scripture and give it to people. The Protestant group believes that the Bible alone is the word of God and every person who has the word can interpret it for themselves. Now, the place that probably is most bothersome for Protestants is two areas. One is purgatory and the second is the selling of indulgences. Now, from where does that come? It comes in the Catholic tradition from what's called the apocryphal. The apocryphal are a group of 14 books that are added to the Catholic Bible. Now, how did that happen? Well, the Jewish Bible, written in Hebrew from centuries before Christ was born, believed that Genesis through Malachi is the basic Jewish scripture. 
But when the Septuagint happened, which is a group of 70 writers who translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek in the second century BC, they also translated the apocryphal books and they added to the Jewish Bible those apocryphal books. But I don't think the faithful Jews ever believed the apocryphal were a part of their canon. The word canon doesn't mean something you shoot something with, it means measurement. So all scripture for the Jews was measured through the lenses of God's truth from Genesis through Malachi. So when the apocryphal was added by the Septuagint writers, you can see that in Jesus' day, for example, Jesus never quoted from the apocryphal, never. Uh, You see that the Qumran community, which we've excavated over the last years, which was right next to Jerusalem, and those faithful Jews in the Qumran community wrote down the scriptures, they did not include the apocryphal in their Jewish scripture. And even most importantly, in the Council of Jamnia in Egypt in 91 AD, 90 years after Jesus' birth, they defined the canon of the Old Testament for Jews for all times. And it's basically Genesis through Malachi. The apocryphal was not a part of it. Well, then from where did it come in the Christian Bible? Well, in the 5th century, a man named Jerome wanted to translate the Bible from the Greek into Latin, the language of the day. And when he did so, he did not want to include the Apocrypha because, again, Jesus never quoted from it. The early church never quoted from it. Nor did Jamnia say it was a part of the canon of the Old Testament. But Augustine, a very influential theologian, encouraged Jerome to include it within the writings of the Bible. So he did so. And for a thousand years, the Apocryphal was assumed to be a part of the Old Testament canon. But when the Protestant reformers, the protesting reformers, did their studies and looked at the fact of early Jewish history during Jesus' day, the Council of Jamnia, they concluded that the Apocryphal should not be in the Protestant Bible. So in translations thereafter, you have in the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, and in the New Testament, Matthew through Revelation. And that is the Protestant Bible, not including the Apocrypha. Now, when that was stated by the Protestant church, the Council of Trent in the mid-1600s, a Roman Catholic council came together and said, no, the Apocrypha should be included. And basically, it was more a reaction to Protestantism than it was really academic thought. So with the Apocrypha still being in the Catholic Bible, they look at it as equally authoritative to the other books of the Bible. And you have a few verses in 2 Maccabees, one of the apocryphal books, which alludes to purgatory, which is a place where people go who aren't bad enough to go to hell but aren't good enough to go to heaven. And they remain in that purgatorial state until, secondly, people do enough indulgences to pray them or work them out of purgatory into heaven. It's kind of an intermediate prison, if you will. And when Protestants look at that, for example, they go, no, that's not in the Bible. You know, Jesus clearly taught there are only two destinations, heaven or hell, and, and there's no such thing as purgatory. So that's a major difference, sola scriptura, the scripture alone, not the apocryphal that's a part of the Roman Catholic Bible. But there are a few other areas that Protestants and Catholics disagree on. One of them would be the second soli, sola fidelis, only by faith, and also soli gratis, only by grace, that salvation, 
Justification, which means my right standing before God, the forgiveness of my sins, only comes by grace through faith. Only. There's no work that we can do that can ever get us into heaven. Paul makes that clear in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For it is by grace that we've been saved, not of our works, lest any man should boast. Well, the Catholic Church does not buy that. They believe that justification does happen when we believe in Jesus. But by our works thereafter, we accelerate our justification, looking more and more like Jesus, our forgiveness, or we decelerate it by not doing enough good works. And if we decelerate enough, we go to purgatory. And of course, that's why so many Catholics feel an obligation to go to mass and to do good works because they feel like they've got to accelerate their justification. But from the Protestant point of view, the Bible is so clear, you are justified in Christ by faith and grace alone. You are totally acceptable in the sight of God the moment you receive Jesus. Then you do good works in response to that salvation. You're not saved by your good works, you're saved for good works. And that's one of the major differences between the two. You know, I hope all of you come to worship because you want to, not because you're on a checklist to accelerate your justification. If you go because you have to, then it's bondage and it isn't meaningful. So that's a major difference. Uh, And finally, another major difference is Mary. Now, Protestants call her beloved. She bore the Christ child. She's obviously exalted in some ways, but never, never does the Bible ever say we need to pray through Mary to get to the Father. Jesus is our one true mediator. And we don't need to go to mom to go through Jesus to get to the Father. So that's a huge major difference between the two. We celebrate so much of what we hold in common. We work together for causes. They have many of the same beliefs and causes that we do, but we recognize the differences. And these differences are real. Next question. I have a hard time with the Old Testament. Well, then my question is, which parts? And here comes the first one. Well, polygamy. In answering this question, you need to understand your biblical worldview. Every single one of you has a worldview. Every single one of you. It it may be a secular worldview. It may be a Hollywood worldview. My worldview is through the Bible. I look at everything through the lenses of the Scripture. So the biblical worldview begins with creation in Genesis 1 and 2, that God created everything perfectly and it was operating perfectly before the fall in Genesis 3. Regarding marriage, the definitive statement of God regarding marriage pre-fall in creation is Genesis 2.24, that a man shall leave his father and mother as will a woman. They leave, then they come together, they cleave, and that is the public worship service before friends and family and God himself, and they make extraordinary vows to one another where they say, for better or for worse, sickness or poor, rich or health, whatever it might be, we're going to stay together for life. It is an inviolable covenant between a man and a woman. And then thirdly, after that, they become one flesh, which is a sexual term. It means they have intimacy together, and that seals the covenant. Now, notice the order. It is not a popular order today. Most people think I'm an anachronistic dinosaur for believing this, but I didn't come up with the idea. God did. First, you leave your parents, then you make the public declaration, then sex. And then children are birthed out of that in a permanent covenant relationship between a man and a woman. It was God's idea. And just think of how many problems would go away if we just did it God's way. Think about the numbers of kids who'd be raised in stable homes, 
Think about the number of STDs and AIDS that would disappear practically in a generation. That was God's design. That's what he intended. Now, the Bible never fudges on human history. In Genesis 3, when the fall occurs, the rest of the Bible is about people living out their lives under sin. And it's raw, real stories of people doing so. And even though God gave in original intent his design for marriage, as sin crept more and more into the world, people disobeyed God and did what they wanted to, even starting to perform polygamous relationships. There are 12 polygamous relationships in the Bible. And every one of them is birthed out of either lust or some kind of political alliance to make a person more powerful. Every single one. And you just need to know as you read them, first of all, it was not God's design. It's an evidence of human rebellion against God's design. Secondly, you need to know none of them worked out. And whenever you read any of the 12, you need to ask yourself this question. How's that working out for you? It never worked out well because it's not God's design. So that's the answer to the polygamy question. And you also need to realize that whenever the prophets came on the scene, the prophets always calling Israel back to God's faithfulness. Every single prophet, when they addressed the issue of marriage, called Israel back to Genesis 2.24. One man, one woman in a committed heterosexual monogamous relationship, they all called him back to faithfulness, to what God originally intended. So that's the answer to the polygamy question. Then comes the question about sacrifice. And more particularly, people are asking the question about Jephthah in Judges chapter 11. Now, if you know the book of Judges, you know it's the story of people all living the way they want to live. And they would start out well with hating sin, then they'd begin to put up with sin, and finally they start embracing sin. And then they'd be captured by a neighboring nation, and then they would cry out to God, and God would raise up a judge to free them. Now, one of those judges was named Jephthah. And he was raised up, and he had to fight a major battle against the Amorites. He was hugely outnumbered in every way. So he cries out to God and says, God, if you will deliver the Amorites unto me and the Israelites in this next battle, the first person who walks out of my house when I come back home, I'll sacrifice to you. Well, the first person that walks out of his house after the victory is his daughter. And he sacrifices her. And those of you who read that story go, what, what is that all about? Let me tell you what it's all about. It's about a stupid man. It's about a really stupid man who made a rash vow that a loving God would have never asked him to keep. But he never, never acquired of God. He just did it. And again, the Bible is an unabashed story about stupid, willfully sinful people. And this is a story about a man named Jephthah who did something willfully stupid that God's not asking all of us to do, and he wouldn't have asked Jephthah to do it. But it is a reminder to all of us not to make rash vows, to think before we speak and promise to do something. Make sure that we've counted the cost before we do something. That's the reason for the story. Then comes the question about annihilation. This is one of the real tripping points for people when they look at the Bible. What is the annihilation passages? They are the ones where God instructs different Jews, Joshua, Sam, uh, Saul, and others, to completely eradicate a group of people in the promised land from the face of the earth. Now, first of all, you need to realize this command is made by God. And if you struggle with it, you probably struggle with the idea of God being a judge. 
Now keep that in mind because that's very important. Most people just want a God of love, but they don't want to see God as also a God of judgment, which he is. Secondly, God used the Israelites in that promised land to eradicate a people who were the most godless people imaginable. They, they practiced fertility cultism, all kinds of prostitution. They sacrificed regularly their little children on the altar of Molech for the purpose of inviting more prosperity into their culture. And they killed thousands upon thousands of children doing that amidst many other evil things. And if you read the Bible, you know that God gave them 400 years to repent. But they only became more and more godless. So finally, he used his people, the Israelites, as his chosen instrument against the Amorites to judge them for their evil. Also, you need to know God needed the Israelites in that promised land without those evil pagan influences, where, by the way, they did not do it. They did not eradicate the land. And the book of Judges is all about those pagan entities continuing to woo the Israelites back to godlessness. But God had to have Israel in that land. Why particularly? Because of Jesus. He needed that Jewish nation in that land to bring the Savior of the world. It was all part of God's plan. So God used the Israelites as his instrument of judgment against the Amorites, the Amalekites, the Canaanites. But you need to know this too, that as the Israelites started living like those pagan entities that they didn't get rid of, God in the book of Leviticus, don't you miss Leviticus? He warned them, if you buy into their way of living, I will bring nations against you and judge you. So later, as they bought into paganism, God brought the Assyrian nation, a godless pagan nation, against the northern kingdom and took them into captivity. Then 200 years later, he brought the Babylonians, and they were his instrument of judgment against the southern kingdom in 586 B.C. And then what's interesting is God didn't like the way the Babylonians treated the Jews. He said, don't treat my children so harshly. And then his judgment against the Babylonians was the Persian nation overtaking Babylon. So God can use whatever instrument he wants to use to judge godlessness. You're listening to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Thanks for listening. Coming up, David joins me in the studio with a conversation about the importance of teamwork. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Tony Marciano, President and CEO of Charlotte Rescue Mission. Let me ask you a question. What do you do when you stand at the intersection of homelessness and addiction? Let me put you in that person's shoes for just a second. What is it that you really need? You've probably been one of the individuals who stood at the end of the interstate ramp holding a sign that said, hungry, will work for food. But you never used the money for food. You bought booze and drugs with it. And most likely, you hate your life. Your addiction has stolen every aspect of hope. You want to be part of the fabric of society, but every morning, your addiction screams and you surrender to it. There is one thing you do need, and that is transformation. The place to go is Charlotte Rescue Mission. Charlotte Rescue Mission works from the inside out to address the root cause of someone at the crossroads of addiction and homelessness. The Rescue Mission provides free, Christian, residential, high-quality substance abuse recovery programs to members of our community who otherwise would not be able to afford such services. 
With a passion for holistic transformation and a love for Christ, the mission's 120-day program has transformed the lives of thousands of men and women in our community. Charlotte Rescue Mission is grateful for the financial partnership of Moments of Hope Church. I'm Jen Houston. Thanks for listening today. Joining me in the studio is our pastor, David Chadwick. David, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Jen. It's great being with you as well. Well, you called this morning's Moment of Hope, Great Dreams Are Accomplished by Great Teams. Can you unpack that for us? Well, I can. And the reason I wanted to do this Moment of Hope today was because few of us accomplish anything great without other people helping us out. And we need to recognize that. Biblically, we are called to be in a body of Christ. We're all connected to one another. And Paul in the New Testament goes as far as to say, when one toe in the body hurts, the whole body hurts because we're connected with one another. And the church can't be successful unless every part of the body is operating connected to one another in the giftedness that God has given us. Now, that's a New Testament illustration, a practical sports illustration that I often tell people is I had the privilege of playing under one of college basketball's greatest coaches ever, Dean Smith. And he's in the Basketball Hall of Fame, acknowledged by everyone as one of the greatest coaches ever. He had a simple rule on the court for all of us. When we scored a basket, we had to turn around and point to the person who gave us the pass. And if we didn't do that, we would be sitting next to him on the bench immediately. Hmm. It was his way of making sure that everyone knew not only who scored the basket, that's you, and that's what draws the attention, but also the person who sacrificed and gave the ball up to give the assist that few people notice. He was just trying to emphasize the value of teams Hmm. and we're connected to one another, the person who scores only could do so with the person who gave the pass up to him. Point to the person who gave you the pass. It's a simple way of saying thank you. We all need each other in life to succeed. Great dreams are accomplished by great teams. That's a realization I wanted people to realize today. That's so good. And it reminds me, I don't know if it's a parable or what, but in the Bible, we're Um, The Lord talks about some people sow and some people reap. Exactly. Yeah. And it's an image that God gives in his word when David went out to battle. Some people stayed behind to do what was necessary in order to provide for the troops what they needed to actually go in the battle. And when David came back with all that he had pillaged, all the uh, bounty, it was divided up equally among those who actually went into war and those who stayed behind. It was a team effort. Mm -hmm. And David realized that it's another reason he was such a great shepherd leader. That's so good. It also reminds me of we are being built up together. And so we are intricately connected to one another and we are all teammates, the bride of Christ, the church. We should realize that. And when we accomplish something, we should point to the person who gave us the pass. Mm. Uh, We should say constantly, thank you to one another. Those two powerful words that are so seldom spoken, but encourage another's heart to continue to work behind the scenes so that we might be able to succeed more publicly, you know, everybody wants to win. I'm in it to win it, you know, in every area of my life. I don't want to be defeated, but in order to succeed, we all need to realize that great teams allow great 
dreams to occur. So folks, anybody who's on your team today, in your workplace or in your family life, make sure you say thank you. Make sure you acknowledge those who are helping you succeed because without that, you can't have success in your life. That's so good. So good. Thank you so much for this encouragement today, David. Well, and thank you listeners for joining me. And if you'd like to receive daily a written moment of hope from me, go to momentsofhopechurch.org. You can subscribe there. These moments of hope that will arrive in your mail box every morning at 7 a.m. are free of charge. They're from my heart to yours to help you begin each and every day with a moment of hope. This has been Moments of Hope with David Chadwick, Senior Pastor of Moments of Hope Church. We'd love to have you join us for worship this Sunday morning. We meet at Providence Day School, located at 5800 Sardis Road in South Charlotte at 10 a.m. You can find more information on our website, momentsofhopechurch.org. Again, come join us Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at Providence Day School, located at 5800 Sardis Road in South Charlotte. Our web address is momentsofhopechurch.org. For David and the entire Moments of Hope Church staff, this is Jen Houston asking you to pray for wisdom for the leaders in our state.